I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We celebrate the written word of Scripture. We celebrate the living word, Christ among us. Please pray with me. O God, have us hear what you would today in these ancient words. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today is the day for which you've all been waiting, the day we answer the question, so what is an Ebenezer anyway? (laughs) This morning we continue our summer sermon series on beloved hymns and their scriptural foundations, And today's hymn is Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, number 356 in our Presbyterian hymnal. For some reason that I can't fathom, Come Thou Fount doesn't get its own page in the hymnal with the music printed with it. The tune appears on the facing page with another newer hymn, number 355. Maybe the Presbyterian hymnal committee thought Come Thou Fount was just a little too antique to get its own page. It is the oldest hymn that we've explored so far this summer, written in about 1758, and it does contain some odd and archaic words that don't trip off the 21st century tongue, like hither, melodious, fetter, and of course, Ebenezer. So here we go. The word Ebenezer is actually two Hebrew words pronounced together. Evan Ha'ezer. Literally, it means stone of help. The first Samuel passage that Phil read is the story of the celebration of Israel's victory over the Philistine army, a victory that came against all odds when the thundering voice of God threw the troops into confusion and the Philistines fled. An Evan Ha'ezer, or Ebenezer, is simply a monumental stone, or stack of stones, set up to remind the people that God was the source of the victory, the source of the help. And so in the hymn, this line about the Ebenezer is followed by, Hither by thy help I've come. This reflects the experience of the writer of this hymn, Robert Robinson. Robinson felt that he had been sought and found by God in spite of himself. He was born to a working-class family in Swatham, Norfolk, England, in 1735. His father died when he was eight, and at age 14, his mother sent him to London to learn to be a barber. Instead of learning about shaves and haircuts, however, he joined a notorious youth gang that terrorized London during the mid-18th century. When Robinson was 17, several gang members thought it would be amusing to disrupt a gathering of Methodists. But a famous preacher was speaking at the event, and instead of scoffing at 
what Robinson thought of as those poor, deluded Methodists, Robinson was bowled over by what he heard. He converted. Several years later, he entered the ministry of the Methodist Church. Later, he left the Methodist Church to become a Baptist pastor. He wrote this hymn when he was only 23 years old. Kathleen Norris writes, There is a powerful moment in any religious conversion in which a person realizes that it is nothing you have done, but it is all of one event, God's being there and being of help. You are certain that it is God that brought you to this moment, which may even feel like a victory. And so Robinson says, Here I raise my Ebenezer, here on the mount of God's unchanging love, as the last line of the first verse puts it, here because of God's help. God's unceasing mercy indeed calls for songs of loudest praise. But this isn't the end of the story, not for Robinson, not for the hymn. Come thou fount of every blessing is a song of gratitude and praise for God's help, but the aspect of the hymn that captures my heart and imagination is that it is also a prayer. Okay, God, here I am in the light of your love, thanks to your grace. But now, God, keep me here. Bind my wandering heart. Take my heart and seal it, writes Robinson, because I am prone to wander. This was true for Robinson. The line, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, was foretelling of his later years. He was indeed inclined to slide back into a godless life. The story is told that Robinson was riding in a stagecoach one day when he noticed a woman deeply engrossed in a hymn book. They struck up a conversation. The woman hummed a hymn, this hymn and asked Robinson what he thought of it. Robinson, the story goes, burst into tears and said, Madam, I am the poor and happy man who wrote that hymn many years ago, and I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy the feelings I had then. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. This is Robinson's prayer that God will transform his heart and mind and life so he won't wander away from God. This kind of transformation is the subject of the verses we read this morning in Paul's letter to the Romans. The appropriate response to finding ourselves on the mount of God's unchanging love is to shape our lives according to God's gracious will. In fact, it is the goal of Christian life. Paul uses the Greek word word metamorpho, from which we get our English word metamorphosis, to describe the transformation that we can anticipate as Christians. Paul also uses the language of sacrifice, be a living sacrifice, language we shy away from in the 21st century, but all Paul means is that nothing less than our whole life belongs to God and is to be shaped by God. We might translate these verses in Romans this way. Don't let yourselves be shaped by what everyone else does, 
but rather let yourselves be transformed by a whole new way of thinking so that you can figure out what it is God wants us to do and be every day in every way to collaborate with God in God's objectives for the world. Tune my heart to sing God's grace. It needs to be a change of heart because Robinson knows that if he isn't changed from the inside out, the change won't take, it won't last. Our career transition support group here at First Presbyterian Church usually focuses on a book in addition to our weekly check-in and sharing of job search ideas. The book we'll begin begin to study in mid-September is Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It might not sound like a spiritual book, but it is. Covey, a Christian, died just a few weeks ago. One of the operating principles of his life was that he had never seen lasting solutions to problems, lasting happiness and success that came from the outside in, rather than starting with an interior change. We can see this principle at work in history. I've been watching Ken Burns' PBS documentary series on prohibition. In the early years of our nation, even the people who were adamantly opposed to drinking alcohol did not support outlawing it because they were so convinced that the only change that mattered was an interior change, not something coming from the outside. And it turned out that they were right. Prohibition failed miserably. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. The goal of the transformation that Paul describes and that Robinson so craved is to reflect God's love and grace. One of the dangers of the life of faith is confusing this authentic, grace-filled, inside-out transformation with pious behavior or churchy language. This is what infuriated Jesus about the scribes and Pharisees. They wanted to look holy. They wanted to feel special, to stand apart from the riffraff. And so they kept the letter of the law rather than reflecting God's love and grace. Unfortunately, this is not just a first century problem. Mahatma Gandhi famously remarked that if only Christians would live what we say we believe, according to the teachings of Jesus, we all would become Christians. And when Homer Simpson asked his fundamentalist neighbor, Ned Flanders, where his family had been, Flanders replied, we went away to Christian camp. We were learning how to become more judgmental. Where is this camp, and why is it so well attended? Tuning our hearts to sing God's grace means asking ourselves, am I growing in love for God and love for God's people? As our associate pastor Diana might say, it's all that simple and it's all that hard. So what do we do, especially given that Robinson's story doesn't have a happy ending? that he couldn't seem to hold on to the transformation he so desired. There are a couple of ways to answer that. One answer is the same answer that Michael Phelps and Gabby Douglas would give if you asked them how they got to London. The same as the punchline to that old joke, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? That's right. 
the Christian church has a long and rich tradition of spiritual practices. Many people today don't know that, and so they look to other traditions. And these practices are not designed to make us look more holy, but to change us from the inside out. Prayer, singing the faith, hospitality, saying yes to some things and no to others, forgiveness, studying scripture, creating community, keeping a Sabbath. These are just a few of many Christian practices that are like training. They are the training we need to sing God's grace. Worship is one of those practices. A Christian community at worship is a community gathered for rehearsal. It is practicing the practices in the same way a child practices catching a ball or playing scales. You may not think you need the skill, we tell the child, but stay in the game, and the time will probably come when you do. Maybe you're thinking, I never wanted to be an Olympic athlete, and I certainly never wanted to win a gold medal at being a Christian. Sometimes the pressure to succeed produces the opposite results. And I wonder if that is what happened with Robinson. Perhaps he went for the gold instead of beginning with small, gentle steps. And he grew discouraged because he he couldn't be a perfect Christian. It's helpful for me to remember that when Paul uses the word perfect in the Romans passage, a better translation might be mature. This kind of perfection means we grow into becoming fully ourselves as God would have us, mature and ripe, ready for what befalls us, for whatever is to come. This doesn't happen overnight, and it doesn't happen without the support of community. But the other answer to what do we do is that it isn't about what we do as much as it's about what God has already done and is doing now. Maybe Robinson forgot that. Here, I raise my Ebenezer. God loves us and accepts us. Right now, right here, exactly the way we are. That love is symbolized in this table where all of us are invited, regardless of how mature or holy or spiritual we are, even backsliders like Robert Robinson. And it is that love, that grace, that will transform us, not so that we will be more acceptable to God, but because that is what the love of God does. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Spiritual transformation isn't like gritting your teeth. It's like singing a song. It requires our breath and our voice and our whole body, and it is an expression of joy beyond words. It is hearing God's love song deep within us and then learning it so that it becomes a part of us and so that it becomes our song too. Tune our hearts to sing your grace. When I sing this hymn, I am singing this prayer. Teach us, O God, the notes that soar with the liberating truth of our belovedness. 
Teach us the melody that fills us with gratitude. Teach us the harmony that draws us all together with the rest of creation. And make it our song as well, O God. Make it our song too. Amen.